0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, You know, the last five messages we've been talking about Israel and Zionism. I think I'm stuck here, so uh, we're going to continue that study this morning. I'm really not trying to beat a dead horse, but I just think this is a very important subject. You know, the church as a whole is very confused on the subject, and the church as a whole has got some messed up doctrine when it comes to this subject, so I think we need to try to make this as clear as we can. This morning we're going to be looking at what Hebrews 8 adds to this argument, on Christian Zionism. He, Hebrews 8 is probably one of the most fundamental chapters in all the New Testament concerning this problem of the relationship between Israel and the church. Now in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Barnabas, no problem if you don't agree with that, but, you know, that's just my opinion, he appeals to the covenant on which Christ's priesthood is based. And his argument is this, by just so much as the new covenant is better than the old covenant, the priesthood of Yeshua is better than that of Aaron. And chapter 8 can be outlined in this way verses 1 through 5 is basically an introduction, verse 6 is the thesis or the theme of the chapter, verse 7 through 12 give us evidence to substantiate the theme, and then verse 13 is a conclusion. I just want to touch a little bit on the introduction here. He says, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests to offer gifts according to the law. Now, this is talking about Yeshua. If He were on earth, He wouldn't be a priest. Why can't Yeshua be a priest on earth? Why is He excluded? Okay, He's not from the Levitical tribe. All right, Hebrews 7:13 through 14 says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our lord was descended from judah and in connection with that tribe moses said nothing about priests so he wasn't of the right tribe so he couldn't be a levitical priest our lord serves as a priest though in heaven of the true holy of holies Verse four simply states that Christ was not qualified to be a priest under the Mosaic law. Now, we need to understand this because there are some Christians today who try to bring bits and pieces of the Mosaic law into Christianity. You know, and it's some, some things they just outright reject, but other things they bring in. And of course, we got preachers that like to bring you know the favorite thing in tithing. You know, that's that's something they'll never. They'll never walk away from the Mosaic institution. But they need to understand that if the Mosaic law was enforced today, Yeshua would not be qualified to be our priest. Now, the writer of Hebrews on verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, this verse tells us that everything involved in the Levitical order was a shadow of the reality. Very important that we understand that. He says they serve as a copy. Now, copy is from the Greek word hupadigma. We talked about this several weeks ago. It refers to a sign suggestive of something. It's a sketch. It's an outline. It's a copy. The whole system of priests in the Old Covenant was only a copy of the real. We've said in the past, Israel was a type. And if you missed that message, we did several weeks ago called the Typology of Israel. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's very important that we understand this idea of types and anti-types. Wick Brumall tells us this. He says, a type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or anti-type is found in the New Testament Revelation. So there's a graduation from type to anti-type. The type is the shadow. It's not the reality. The anti-type is the reality. We're going from the lesser to the shadow to the greater, the reality. We're going from the material, the shadow, to the spiritual, from the earthly to the heavenly. The word shadow here is skia, which means shadow or silhouette. And the word pattern is tupas, which means a mark or an imprint left by an engraving tool. Now, here's what we have to understand. If you see a shadow, you realize something's casting that shadow, right? The shadow is just something that the reality is demonstrating, okay? If the reality wasn't there, there wouldn't be a shadow. So the shadow presupposes a body or substance which is casting that shadow and exists only as proof of the fact that there is a reality somewhere. So physical Israel was a copy, was a shadow, was a type of true spiritual Israel, the anti-type. And once the anti-type comes, we don't need the type anymore. The spiritual Israel is all those who are in Christ Yeshua. Now, I've said many times we will call this fulfillment theology. The church has fulfilled or is fulfilling the promises that God made to Israel. Now, verse 6 in this chapter gives us a thesis. says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, the question we want to ask and hopefully answer this morning is, In whom is the new covenant being or to be fulfilled? In and by whom are the promises of verse 10 through 11 fulfilled? And, you know, it's funny that we even have to discuss this because you think, well, we know who these promises are fulfilled in. But look at Hebrews 8, 10 through 12 in the promises. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds Write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, why in the old covenant did they have to go and tell their neighbor to know the Lord? In the new covenant, we don't have to. Because in the Old Covenant, let's look at the Old Covenant as a cross-section of a peach. And you've got the pit. And the pit is the remnant. It's the believers. And then you have this outer thing that's just people born into Israel. So the pit, (laughs) not maybe the good best. (laughs) The the center there are the true believers. And the true believers are telling the rest of Israel, those born into Israel, know the Lord, know the Lord. The New Covenant is like a cross-section of a potato. Everybody in the New Covenant knows the Lord. That's why they're in the New Covenant. You only get in the New Covenant by faith. So we don't have to go to each other in the New Covenant saying, Know the Lord. No, everybody in the New Covenant does know the Lord. That wasn't true in the Old Covenant. Now, verse 8 is the key phrase in this issue. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. All right, so God makes it clear he's going to bring a new covenant. It's clear from this verse that the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, Israel split after Solomon, and then you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. So he's making sure we understand that this covenant is made with all of Israel. The problem that emerges here is the fact that apparently our author in Hebrews is applying the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 to the church. You say, well, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because it was made with Israel and Judah. See, the text of Hebrews 8 seems to be clear enough. When you look at it, the new covenant of which Yeshua is the mediator is now in force for believers. Therefore, he argues, why would you be tempted to revert back to the old covenant and the priestly mediation of Aaron? It seems to be clear, yet this presents a major problem for the school of theology called dispensationalism, all right? Of all the things which dispensationalism teaches, the fundamental teaching of the system is there is this distinction between Israel and the church. Now, according to dispensationalism, God has two differing peoples who respectively have two different covenant promises, different destinies, different purposes. Membership in Israel is by natural birth. One enters the church by supernatural birth. Dispensationalists view Israel and the church as having distinct eternal destinies. Israel will receive an earthly eternal kingdom. The church, an eternal heavenly kingdom. And irrespective of anything else that may be found in the system, if you reject the Israel church distinction, you cease to be a dispensationalist, according to dispensationalists. Now, let me say that dispensationalism today has evolved some from the beginning years, but this is how it was laid out. Now, Darby who could be called the father of dispensationalism, stated this distinction in the clearest terms. He said this, the Jewish nation is never to enter the church. If that doesn't bother you, you don't know much about the New Covenant. You don't know much about the Bible because, okay, Pentecost, who was there at Pentecost when the church was born? A bunch of Jewish people, huh? (laughs) It was a Jewish holy day, all right, called Pentecost, And on that day, the Jews had all gathered to celebrate Pentecost. And what happened? The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and the church is born. But the Jewish nation is never to enter the church. I'm like... (sighs) Ryrie considers this the most important dispensational distinction and approves the statement that the basic premise of dispensationalism is the two purposes of God expressed in the formation of two peoples who maintain their distinction throughout eternity. Lewis Perry Schaefer, who's probably one of the most famous exponents of dispensationalism, he defined it this way. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One is related to the earth with earthly people, earthly objectives involved. Which is Judaism, the people of Israel, while the other purpose is related to heaven, with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity, the Church. Hence, the distinction between Israel and the Church of God's purpose and promise for each. Okay, so again, this is this is what they believe. We've got two separate peoples, two separate promises, two separate everything. Charles Ryrie writes this. This distinction is probably the most basic theological test of whether or not a man is a dispensationalist. And it is undoubtedly the most practical and conclusive test. So we just hand out this test. What do you say? If you don't see a distinction, if if they're two separate peoples, then okay, you're a dispensationalist. If you don't see that, you mess up. He concludes this. He says, The essence of dispensationalism is the distinction between Israel and And the church. Now the problem that dispensationalists have with Hebrew eight should be clear. If Israel and the church are two differing peoples of God with two differing covenant promises, how can the new covenant of Jeremiah thirty one, which is clearly made with Israel and Judah, be applied to or fulfilled in the church? See, that's a problem. I mean, wait a minute. You know, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant and he's saying the church is receiving the new covenant. Well, by teaching that Israel is set aside during the church age, and this is, you know, the crazy teaching of dispensationalism, it implies that the promises made to Israel are also set aside. You know, if God set aside Israel and start dealing with the church, wouldn't he have set aside all those promises to Israel? So they don't get him yet, I guess. Dispensationalism teaches that the church is a parenthesis. We talked about this a little bit last week, all right? God's purpose is Israel. He's dealing with Israel. They teach that because Israel rejected Christ, see, God didn't know that was going to happen, okay? I don't know what God that is, but that's not the God of the Bible, but this God that they, you know, knows what happened. So it took them by surprise. Okay, so God stopped the clock. He said, whoa, wait a minute. Israel, my people, rejected me? Okay, I got to come up with something else. All right, let's stop the clock for a minute. Okay, I'll deal with the church now. But in the future, and most people still believe it is future, he's going to return to dealings with Israel. And this is how they deal with the time passages. And I got to admit, it's kind of a clever way, you know, at least they recognize the time passages, right? Most people don't. Oh, he said soon, but he didn't mean that at all. Okay. Yeah, he did. And so dispensational recognizes yes, soon, at hand, shortly, all these things mean what the, but see, God stopped the clock. So, soon is still soon, once the clock starts again, you know. (laughs) It can get a little bit confusing here. And it is funny, but it's not funny, because dispensationalism is, you know, is in, in, which is definitely the spiritual root of Christian Zionism is dispensationalism, and this theology is uh, just is ruining people of a lot of the precious promises of God. Uh, they have fully permeated the American churches, and so many, majority of the American churches are dispensational, Zionistic, and they hold to this view. Okay, that as I hope you know by now. I believe that the Bible teaches the essential continuity between Israel and the church. All right? We are the Israel of God. The elect of all ages are seen as one people with one Savior, with one destiny. And we saw this. We've been looking at this for the last several weeks. And I said that we as believers, you know, Paul says in Romans 11, have been grafted into God's olive tree. All right? He broke off some branches. The remnant was still there. He grafted us in with the remnant of Israel. But dispensationalism teaches, no, God didn't do that. He went and planted a new tree. All right? No, He didn't. He grafted us into Israel through Yeshua, who is true Israel. We inherit the Abrahamic promises because we're connected to the tree. Ryrie writes this, If the church is fulfilling Israel's promise as contained in the New Covenant or anywhere in the Scriptures, then dispensational premillennialism is condemned. Oh, good. Okay, then let me condemn dispensationalism for you now by showing you some scriptures. Um, According to Ryrie's standard, let's look at a few promises that God made to Israel that are fulfilled in the church. For example, God made a promise to Israel in Hosea 2.23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. All right, this was promised to Israel, but it's fulfilled in the church according to Peter. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So he is talking to the church here, people, Christians who were born again, to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Yeshua the Christ from the dead. So Peter's writing to the church. Very important that we understand that. And here's what he says to the church. You are a chosen race. That's used of Israel. A royal priesthood. That's used of Israel. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he says in Hosea, I'm going to have mercy on not my people. They're going to be my people. And he, Peter says that same thing to the church. So it was promised to Israel, but we see it fulfilled in the church who is the Israel of God. Again, promised to Israel, Amos 9-11, "...and that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches." and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Where is this fulfilled in the New Testament? Anybody know? It's in Acts, yeah. It's in Acts 15 where they have a problem, you know. The, we got people saying, well, yeah, you can you know, believe in Christ, but you've got to be circumcised, all right? So they get in the, the church is in this discussion. In Acts fifteen fourteen, it says, Simeon hath related how God first visited the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written, after this I will return and I'm going to rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, from old, All right, so he says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David. And in Acts 15, we, Peter talking about the rebuilding of the tent of David, he's going to rebuild the ruins. Now, James here is using an argument. And James says the salvation of the Gentiles that you're seeing, because they're arguing about these Gentiles can't just come in. They have to be circumcised. And James says, well, you know, this is what we see here is what the Lord promised. And then what Peter has done, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he says, is the fulfillment of what Amos was talking about. Amos said the tabernacle of David would be restored in order that the Gentiles may seek after God. Well, the Gentiles are now being saved. So what does that tell you about the tabernacle of David? It was at that time being restored. And the tabernacle of David, spoken of by Amos, is used as a prophetic symbol Of the habitation of God. There are many passages in the Tanakh referring to Israel that are spoken in the New Testament and applied directly to the church. For example, this was spoken to Israel, Joel 2. You know where this is going to be used in the New Testament, right? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said. And among the survivors shall be those who Yahweh calls. Now, I think we're all familiar with the fact that Peter quotes this passage on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And they see things happening, and he says, hey, this is that that Joel talked about. Joel said this was going to happen. He gives this to Israel. Well, here Israel is at Pentecost. The church is born. This promise is fulfilled in them. Spoken to Israel, Exodus 19, 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We know this applied in the church. We just saw it in Peter. We just read it. He says, those Christians, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This was spoken to the church, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-seven. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is applied in the church. In 2 Corinthians six sixteen. it says, For we, Paul's meaning believers, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, I will walk among them, I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, spoken to Israel, fulfilled in the church. Another one, Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Applied, given to Israel, fulfilled in the church. But as he who called you is holy, Peter says, you also be holy in all your conduct. So over and over we see these scriptures that are applied to the church. Jeremiah 31:31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, house of Judah. And then we see it applied to the church. Look at Luke 22:20, 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, take this cup that is poured out for you, as is the new covenant in my blood. So Yeshua is saying, this is the new covenant. The new covenant is particularly problematic for dispensationalism. As Jeremiah 31 is undeniably addressed to Israel, the new covenant is the very heart of the gospel. Yet, if the church is fulfilling the promises given to Israel under the new covenant, then dispensationalism fails. And this is the force of the problem. If God has two differing peoples, Israel and the church, with different covenant promises, how is it that the author of Hebrews applies the new covenant and its blessings, which are clearly said in verses 8 through 10, to be with Israel to the church? Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. And in verses 7 through 18, Paul engages in this lengthy contrast between the Mosaic Covenant, which could not be accomplished, and the New Covenant, in which it has accomplished. Paul says that believers, him and others, are ministers of the New Covenant. Paul obviously is referring to the New Covenant mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11.25, which is the New Covenant mentioned in Luke 20.20, which is identical to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. Paul told the 1st century Corinthian Christians they were ministers of the New Covenant. And it's very hard to be a minister of a New Covenant that's not in operation. Okay? To be a minister or servant of the New Covenant simply means we have the responsibility to proclaim to the world that the New Covenant is here. It is operative. And the blessings which are promised in it are available to those who have faith in the sacrificial death of our Lord Yeshua who is its mediator. Now, in what sense can these Israelitish covenant promises be fulfilled in and by Christian believers if, in fact, God has two differing peoples and two differing purposes? As I said, this destroys dispensational distinction between Israel and the church. Now, as a consequence of this, there has been suggested by dispensational scholars, because they figure out we've got some trouble here, all right, how do we deal with this, They come up with different ways to deal with the problem. I just want to share with you two of them. Uh, Some of this stuff is kind of crazy. But first of all, there is the suggestion of John Nelson Darby. Again, he's the father of dispensationalism. I don't know if you know this, but dispensationalism originated among the Plymouth Brethren in the early 1830s. And John Nelson Darby, educated as a lawyer and ordained Anglican priest, was one of the chief founders of the Plymouth Brethren movement. And years back, we had some Plymouth Brethren people come to the church, and they were very anti-title, title title for anything. Even in the hymn books, you couldn't put titles on the hymns. So, you know, it makes things a little bit confusing, but they were just, you know, this this is dispensationalism, all right, Darby as the founder. And Darby suggested that the new covenant is not in any sense operative in this age, meaning the age in which we live, the church age, that the new covenant will be fulfilled only in the future millennium to the restored nation of Israel. Now, how he attempts to deal with Hebrews 8 is a very interesting study. But he will contend that at most there are some side benefits which accrue to the church from the new covenant. So we don't really have the new covenant. We're just picking up some side benefits from it. But literally speaking, the new covenant is future in its application and fulfillment. It's not a very popular view today, even among dispensationalists. But one uh, that is more popular is the second view is called the two covenant view. And there's a lot of ramifications to this, but this view holds that there are two new covenants presented in the scriptures. In the New Testament, one for Israel, one for the church. Louis Sperry Chafer appears to be the originator of this idea, which was held by John Walford and at one time held by C. Uh, Charles Ryrie. Ryrie later moved away from this. But this view essentially would divide the references of the New Covenant in the Scriptures to two different groups. For example, they say the references in the Gospels... To the new covenant, and in Hebrews 8, 6, 915, and 1029 and 1320 refer to the new covenant with the church. But Hebrews eight, seven through thirteen and ten sixteen would refer to the new covenant with Israel. Now that sounds just like what partial preterists do to second coming verses, doesn't it? Oh, this is, this is the first second coming, this is the second second coming, you know, and they divide the verses all up with no justification whatsoever to do that. And there's no justification, there's no two new covenants. Why is it reading Hebrews that someone would contend, oh, look at, there's two different covenants one for Israel, one for the church? Why is this view in existence? What's the motive for its emergence? Well, I'll tell you the motive. Listen to Schaefer here. He says, there remains to be recognized a heavenly covenant for the heavenly people, which is also styled like the preceding one for Israel, a new covenant. It is made in the blood of Christ, continues in effect throughout this age, whereas the new covenant made with Israel happens to be future in its application. Now, here's the key to this, what he says next. He says this, to suppose that these two covenants, one for Israel, one for the church, are the same is to assume that there is latitude of common interest between God's purpose for Israel and His purpose for the church. She said, we can't have that because that would mean that God wants the same thing for Him." No, we can't have that at all. So the reason or motive for reading into this passage two covenants instead of one is a desire to keep separate God's purposes and promises for Israel. That just boils down to people not understanding type and anti-type. They think Israel's an end in itself. No, it never was. I think this view was born of controversy rather than sound exegesis. It's not extremely popular today either, but forms of it are still held by some people. One of the modern, very popular preachers who holds a two-covenant view, different from that, he He holds that Israel has its covenant and the church has its covenant, is John Hagee, founder of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas. Hagee boasts a congregation of over 17,000 people, but that's not all of it. He's the president and CEO of John Hagee Ministries. I'm always a little bit leery when ministries, you know, you put your own name on it and you say, John Hagee Ministries, you know, I I don't know, That just maybe it's just me, all right? But anyway, Hagee's ministry telecasts his national radio and television on 160 TV stations, 50 radio stations, eight networks and can be seen, they say weekly, in 99 million homes. That just gives you a little bit of influence. a little idea of this guy's influence, all right? And he's got some really strange... I mean, he's a Christian Zionist with some strange views. Hagee is the founder of Christians United for Israel, all right? Which he describes as a national association through which every pro-Israel church, parachurch organization, ministry or individual in America can speak and act with one voice in support of Israel, and matters related to biblical issues. Hagee preaches another way of salvation for the Jew, which is a direct violation of Paul's warning in Galatians 1, 6 through 6-9. He says, if we or an angel preach you any other gospel, let him be anathema. Hagee says this in, on his website. Um, it has this uh, commitment to Israel, and it says... We believe in the promise of Genesis twelve three regarding Jewish people in the nation of Israel. That promise was made to Abram, not to the Jewish people, not to Israel. It was made to Abram. All right, but let's not worry about that. All right. We believe Christians should bless and comfort Israel and the Jewish people. Now this these are Jewish people who don't care about Yeshua. Now I read something this morning and I don't know that it's true, but Ben Shapiro, you know who Ben Shapiro is? Okay, he said Christ got what he deserved. You, you, he had, he, he's a Jew, Ben Shapiro's a Jew, and he said Christ got what he deserved. All right? Huh? Yeah, based on the law, he, you know, whatever. It just, you know, it's, okay, whatever. But, but So these are the people that we're supposed to support, the people who are Christ-haters, who John says is a God-hater. And we're supposed to be supportive of these people. He says, believers have a Bible mandate to combat anti-Semitism and to speak out in defense of Israel the chosen nation. Also on his website, under the this title of Israel and the Church, the website says this, the Jewish people were adopted by God as his own. They are a covenant people. They do not occupy the land of Israel. They own it. I'm going to spend a minute here telling you that's not true, okay, and try to prove that to you. They own the land, he says. We, let me say this, they never owned the land, ever, okay? All the promises were fulfilled. We talked about that last week, right? God made promises to Israel. He fulfilled them, Joshua says it twice, but they never owned the land. We stand with Israel because God himself stands with Israel. Israel's not a political issue. Israel's is a biblical issue. Now, I would totally reverse that. It is a political issue. It has nothing to do with the Bible. So he's got this upside down. He says, in God's foreign policy, he says he will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. I mean, that's just a threat. You better stand with Israel or you're going to be cursed. And a lot of people who are biblically ignorant just say, oh, I don't want to say anything bad about that. He says, the church has not replaced Israel. Christians owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people they can never repay. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, Hagee says that Christians United for Israel intends to interact with the government in Washington. This is the scary part. And persuade it to stop pressuring Israel to give up land for peace. Besides the fact that it doesn't work, he says Israel has a Bible mandate the land the problem see with zionism it has affected a lot of our politicians are zionists okay so they just they're going along with this we got to be careful with israel we got to make sure they get whatever we can't upset israel and i'm not talking about politi- political purposes but for spiritual purposes, they think that we just owe them all right So Christian Zionism takes the land promises of God in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 and applies them to the modern state of Israel. To Christian Zionists, this promise of land inheritance is permanent and unconditional. That is their land. Therefore, despite Israel's own declaration of being a secular state, and despite Israel's low religious participation, all right, there's very few Jews over there in Israel that are religious. The modern state of Israel, Hagee says, still benefits from a four thousand year old promise. Let's talk about the land, because this is huge with Zionism, all right. They, you know, this is 1948. Israel became a nation. That's fulfilling biblical prophecy. Israel's coming back. It's going to happen. It's all about this land. Let me ask you something. Is that plot of dirt over there in the Middle East a special place to God? Does God look at that and say, Man, I love that place? (laughs) Yeah, that's where He loves to vacate. That's the best place. All right, listen. Dispensationalism and Zionism make much of the land of Israel. All right? They teach that Israel has to be restored to that land because the land promises God made to Israel, they're unconditional and they are forever. Now, we said last week that the physical land promises made to Abraham were fulfilled. There is no physical land promise yet to be fulfilled. Israel is removed from the land because of their sin. God said, if you obey me, you can enjoy the land. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. I'm removing you. Well, in Christian Zionism, 1948 is not simply a political marker in history. It's a theological marker. See, they think that's a that's a prophecy being fulfilled. It's got nothing to do with prophecy, people, nothing at all. Israel has been restored to the land in fulfillment of prophecy the Zionists say. Therefore, the establishment of modern Israel is a theologically ordained event deserving of profound Christian respect and awe. Oh, God's getting ready to, you know, if you know your Bible, if you know what happens to Israel in the tribulation, they're slaughtered. And yet, Hagee and all these other people are raising money to get Jews back to Israel. I'd be like, no, I'll pass. I know what happens. I read the book. (laughs) I know what happens. You know, you go back and you go through the tribulation. And you all get slaughtered and the city gets destroyed and everybody dies. No, no thank you. But somehow they're raising money to get Jews back over there. All right? It's a little bit crazy. The birth of the modern state of Israel in 1948 had nothing to do with biblical prophecy. Nothing at all. As we taught a couple weeks ago, there is no Jewish race today. They've intermingled, they've intermarried to the point there's no Jewish race today. Anthropologists say this. Now, do you remember last week what I said the land represented? What does the land represent? The land represents the presence of of Yahweh, okay? When they were out of the land, they were away from Yahweh, and they were spiritually dead, because we're away, we're out of our homeland, we're away from Yahweh. The land was a type. And the anti-typical fulfillment came when the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new covenant, arrived and we tabernacle with God. Now, the unconditional promises were made to Abraham and his seed, which is Christ. The land is a type. It pictured the presence of Yahweh. Let me try to show you this from Scripture, that the land was a type, and understand what is going on with the land and how it doesn't relate to them today at all. In 2 Kings 5, we have the story of Naaman, the leper. All right, you're familiar with that story, I guess, right? Naaman, he's a leper, and he hears in his country from a slave girl who says, boy, it's too bad he can't go to Israel because he could get cured. And they're like, whoa so Naaman hears that and he goes oh cool and so he goes to Israel and he tells the king hey well I'm here to get cured and the king goes ah he throws you know dust in the air and he's having a fit because you came here to kill me because we can't do that and you know Elisha says, hey tell him to come see me you know so he goes and he sees Elisha and Elisha says hey go dip the Jordan a bunch of times and he goes I'm not doing that that's ridiculous we got better rivers back in where I'm from you know and this his then his His people say, look, if he asked you to do something spectacular, wouldn't you do it? Just go do it, you know, follow Elisha's instructions. So he goes and he dips in the Jordan seven times and he comes back. He's he's cured. Says the skin's like a baby. You know, he's just perfect, you know, skin. And so he comes back to thank Elisha and he says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Does that sound like a testimony of belief? Okay, I, I'm with you now. There is no other God than this God that you serve. So accept now present from your servant. But he says, As Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but no, nope, he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god, but Yahweh. So Naaman held an opinion that was common in the ancient world, and that was that particular deities had power over particular places. Okay, they were regional deities, just like governments are regional. The deities were regional. We see this view expressed in 1 Kings 20, 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said, so he's quoting here, this is what the Syrians said, Yahweh is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. So they wanted him to defeat Israel. We got to get Israel in the valley. We'll whip them easy because their God's a hilly God. Okay. He's the, he's the God of the mountains. We got to get him out there. So he goes, therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Yahweh. All right. So they believed that particular deities had power over particular places. And that's why when Israel was out of the land, they're away from Yahweh. There were gods of hills, there were gods of valleys. In the ancient Near East, gods were generally considered as having defined territorial jurisdiction, just as political leaders would have had. And this jurisdiction could be divided up among national lines, like each nation basically have their own patron deity, Or it could be uh, topologically, you know, the boundaries of rivers, mountains, stuff like that, as we see here. You know, he's the God of the mountains. Now, the fact that Israel was a mountainous country and that the capital city, Samaria and Jerusalem, were both in mountain regions, would fuel this speculation. Hey, this is Yahweh's terror. He's a mountain God. So we go to the valleys. He can't win. Right. This is their thinking. All right. And he says, because the Syrians said Yahweh is the God of the hills and not of the God of valleys, they will now be defeated in such a way as to show that Yahweh's power is everywhere and that the multitude of a host is nothing against him. Yahweh is Lord of all places, all persons, all things. Now, this view of God's having defined territorial jurisdiction, I think is supported in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which would be a passage dealing with... uh, you know, <clears throat> my mind just shut off on me. What a, what a time to shut down on me. The divine council worldview. Oh, thank you. I think the battery's low. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 32, 8 9 says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. All right, so there's God giving an inheritance to the nations. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people's according to the numbers of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. All right, so here God is fixing borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, or divine beings. Now, in chapter 10 of Genesis, it's called the table of nations. In the back, That's the backdrop for Moses' statement here that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations and the gods over them. So man's disobedient at the Tower of Babel caused Yahweh to divide them up and give them to the lesser gods. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of sons of God. So God divides up the nations, says this God will be over you, this God will be over this nation, this God will be over that nation. So that's what happened. All right, back to our story of Naaman. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. Why did Naaman want dirt? Special. This special dirt. What's so special about this dirt? This reflects a belief that Israel's territory belonged to Yahweh, right? Well, other gods, other nations were under the dominion of lesser gods. So Naaman now believes in Yahweh. He's, yeah, your God is the God, so I need some dirt because I got to take Yahweh back with me, Okay? You think this is strange, but you know Christians are just have some strange beliefs like this, you know? I mean, you know, people will ask, well, would you pray for this? Because I know you have a special in with God. I'm like, what, are you crazy? I have no special in, you know? I don't have a hotline or anything anymore. Any Christian can pray. Or they get in some building and they think, oh, God is here. Well, yeah, because you brought them if you're a Christian, you know, because you're the temple of God. So even though these views might seem strange to us. We have some strange views. But he thought, I'm going to take some ground with me. I'm going to take some dirt so I can have Yahweh with me when I go outside of Israel, when I go back home and I worship Him. He thought if he could take a piece of Israel with him to Syria, then he could worship God when he was in Syria. He could worship the true God because now he's on dirt from Israel. So the land represented the presence of Yahweh. With that in mind, I want you to see what happened in the early church. As the Gospels end, Yeshua has been rejected by the Jewish leadership. They put him to death. They killed their Messiah. So now what happens to all the promises that God made to Israel? Does God stop with Israel and turn to the church as the dispensationalists teach? Time out. I didn't know this was going to happen. We've got to go to the other plan. No. Physical, national Israel was a type it found its fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16. You've got to understand that verse. The promise were made to Abraham and his seed. The seed is Christ. So he's receiving the promises. The shadow is gone. The Old Covenant shadow. The reality is here. We don't need the shadow anymore. Thus the nation Israel, the Jewish people, have no special significance in God's plan or purpose. That shadow is gone. It doesn't mean anything. It's all about Yeshua and those who trust in Him. Believers, all believers, we are the true Israel. We are the inheritors of all God's promises. The church is the kingdom of God. Now, with that said, look at Acts chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Wow, that's a great attitude, isn't it? That's not really mine. Anyway, you can have it. But they had everything in common. This is not communism. This is not force. They did this because they wanted to do this. They wanted to take care of each other. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. That's amazing. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. All right? So they found people with needs. They they sold what they had and met the needs. We see in this text that believing Israelites, those who had trusted Christ, Gentiles aren't in here yet. Gentiles aren't part of this yet. Believing Israelites are selling their land. You got a need? I'm going to sell some land help you out. All right, we see the spiritual lesson here. All right, they had this unity, they cared about the poor, and they're ministering to them. But you've got to understand the culture to get the whole picture. There is an old covenant violation in this verse. What is it? Israelites were not allowed to permanently sell their land. Why? Why? It wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs. The land belonged to God. Okay, that's why I said that land was never theirs. All right. Look at Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. God owns that. You're strangers and sojourners with me. I'm letting you live here. If you obey, I'm letting you live here. Okay, but it's my land. The land was not supposed to be sold to strangers at all. When the land was sold, it was to be sold on the basis of the year of Jubilee, and ideally it was to be sold only to a family member. Leviticus 25. The land belongs to Yahweh, who let the Israelites use it as long as they were obedient to Him. Look at Deuteronomy 4:25 and 26. When you father children and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is before they ever got the land. God's warning them. Well, you know how well they paid attention, right? You will not live in it long, but we utterly destroy. All right. So the land was Yahweh's, and He let Israel dwell in it as long as they lived in obedience to the Mosaic covenant. We see the significance of the land in Jeremiah 32. Now, just prior to the Babylonian captivity, all right, because of Israel's disobedience, because they wouldn't let the land rest, God says, "You're going into captivity, 70 years." All right. But before it happens, he tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 7, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Now, why was Jeremiah to buy land when Judah was about to be destroyed and taken into captivity? That doesn't sound like a good time to buy land, right? Maybe sell land, but not buy it. All right? Well, Jeremiah tells us why in verse fourteen and fifteen, he says, "Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel: Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time." So, okay, you bought the land. Take the deeds, put them in this earthen jar. Why? So it'll last. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel: Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land okay very important Jeremiah was told to buy land because God says you're going into captivity I'm gonna bring you back and after I bring you back from the Babylonian captivity you can buy land again you can live on the land again now in Acts we we have a very similar situation because Yeshua has taught his disciples that Jerusalem and the temple are gonna be destroyed in their generation right Matthew 24, 34, truly I say unto you, this generation, the one he was talking to, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what are all these things? Well, if you go back through the chapter, it's everything he talked about, but mostly the destruction, and we see this in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Yeshua left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, all right, you got the focus, the temple, he's leaving the temple, they point out the temple, he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Referring to the buildings of the temple. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. that will not be thrown down. All right, yes, this is magnificent. It's going to all be destroyed. The disciples of Yeshua knew that Jerusalem and Judea were going to be destroyed. They knew that the Romans were going to desolate the city and lay the land waste. But this had happened before. Jerusalem was desolated in 586 B.C., And the Jews didn't sell their land at that time. Jeremiah even bought land. So why sell it now? Well, in Jeremiah, we find the promise of restoration to the land. But in the New Testament, we don't have the promise of Israel ever being promised to return to the land. God never says anything about, oh, don't worry, I'll bring you back here. The type of the land was now being fulfilled by the anti-type, who was the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. We inherited everything God has for us. He is our inheritance. We don't need a piece of land. Christ is our inheritance. The land no longer had any spiritual value because the anti-type had arrived. So he said, so believers are free. Sell your land. Do whatever you want with it. They're free to do that. In Don Preston's article, The Land is Mine, he writes this. The land of Israel today has no special meaning. Oh, that would make so many Christians cringe. <laughs> they just freak out about that. It's no longer the Holy Land. And the people that inhabiting the land are not biblical Israel. Not even close, all right? The land never belonged to them exclusively in the first place. It belonged to God "...as a loan to them until His determinative purpose for the Messiah was fulfilled." The Jerusalem Christians knew that God was fulfilling His promises, and those promises are spiritual, not earthly. If they were so willing to abandon their physical birthright in the capital city of Jerusalem, they surely believed that they were now about to receive the fulfillment of God's promises concerning the heavenly city and country." The fact that Acts records the Christians in Jerusalem were willing so gladly to sell their land allotments can mean only one thing. They knew that literal city was doomed. And they also knew they were now citizens of a greater heavenly Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. And those who owned the lands or houses were selling them. You know, you can read right over that in Acts and not get it if you don't understand. They can't do that. So they're selling their land, which pictured, listen, their understanding that the Old was passing away and the New Covenant was about to be consummated. They got that. They were moving on with Christ to the New Jerusalem, the New Covenant. Now in contrast to this, Ananias and Sapphira were hanging on to the Old and thus they received judgment. And this pictures, I think, the judgment that was soon to come upon all who were clinging to earthly Jerusalem. So the type of the land has been fulfilled by the Lord Yeshua. Land doesn't matter anymore. That land over there, you know, Christians want to go over there and go to the Holy Land and see, and that's cool, and see things. You know, of course, they tell you this is where this happened, and yeah, maybe not. Maybe it was, maybe not. And it's cool to go over there, but this has no spiritual significance anymore. God is done with that. God's kingdom is spiritual. Remember Yeshua talking about that? He said, if my kingdom was physical, my, my, they would fight. But they're not fighting. Why? Because it's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is amid, among you right now, he says. So, people, here's what you got to understand. Whatever happens in Israel today has nothing to do with the Bible. Now, every time something goes on in Israel, the the prophecy proponents go crazy. Oh, the Lord's about to do, the Lord's about to do this, the Lord's about to do that. Look what happened, look what happened there. Don't pay attention to that at all, because it doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do with scripture. Yahweh ended the physical nation of Israel and their law, the old covenant in A.D. 70, when he destroyed the temple and the city. Now, because God knew, well, I'll tell them it's over, they won't believe me. I'll make sure they know it's over. And he shut it down. He destroyed it. Many Jews were slaughtered. Many others were taken into captivity. The the temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. And as I've said over and over and over, they have never, ever since sacrificed an animal. The heart and soul of Judaism is a sacrificial system, which was a type, pointed to the anti-type Christ. Since Christ is here, guess what? We don't need that. And just because you're so hard-headed and don't get it, I'm going to make sure you don't do it anymore. Okay? And if they try to sacrifice again, they got Peter to contend with. Okay? <laughs> They'll have a fit there. But they, they've never, it's over. The, the law ended, everything ended. And what boggles my mind is Judaism kind of reinvented itself. We're going to go on. We're going to still have the Sabbath. We're going to still have the feast days. We just changed everything in them. Because again, the sacrifice was heart and soul of that system, because it was pointing. We're killing this pointing, pointing the blood. Christ is the Lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sin of the world. They're like, oh, wow, this is the representative. He's going to do it. It's done. All that's done. So don't buy into any of this nonsense that those are special people, special land, special anything. You, believers, are the special people of God. You are God's chosen nation. You are His holy people. All right? It's all about the church. Today, believers and only believers are the Israel of God. doesn't matter whose birthright you have because that, they can't trace that anyway. It's all about faith. We inherit the promises of Abraham because we're grafted into that olive tree. All the promises are ours through faith in Christ who is the true Israel. Type is gone. Anti-type. Is here. When the Antitype comes, you don't need the type anymore. It's foolish. Why would you go over and hang around the shadow when the reality is right there? Go to the reality. It's over, people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to the church. Lord, it seems so clear to me. I don't know how many people miss it, but Lord, so many different theologies out there, so many different viewpoints. It can be so confusing. I just ask that you give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would take the Bible, we'd study it to see if this is so. Please, Lord, have not believed Bible teachers, Bible preachers, but take what they say and go to the Word of God and see if it's true. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for the day and age in which we live, which we can do so much research, so much study. Give us that heart of a Berean, Lord, for your grace. Amen. Amen. I I think I've told you before about R.B. Theme. He was a preacher in Texas. Uh, They called him the colonel. He preached. He had a church, and he preached every night, Baraka Church. Every day he preached. And I I remember listening to him uh, because I I was just so fascinated by him. He's such a character. But he said uh, that passage in Bere, you know, acts about the Bereans you know he said the Bereans were jackasses he said you got no business checking up on the preacher and I thought wow you talk about psychological manipulation in other words whatever I say goes you don't check up on me I'm like that's kind of backwards there but that's what he said you got no business checking up on the preacher what the preacher says that's it you just believe it and we got, we got that, and listen, and people go to the church. Yeah, there's a bunch of sheep that just follow along and don't bother. You know, people listen. We and Listen, today especially, there's no excuse, okay? We all have Bibles. We all have computers. We can search. We can research. You could sit down with your phone and study for hours and hours and hours and look into all kinds of things, libraries all over the place. You just need a heart to do it. And I pray God would give us that heart, that we would just enjoy the study of the Word of God, to see the truth. You know, this is exciting. These blessings are ours. We're not some second-class citizens that God just put on, you know, hold until He could get back to His real people Israel and fulfill all those promises for them. That's nonsense. We're the special people. <laughs> Questions or comments? Gary? Um, kind of off subject, but you were stating there God said, "Don't make a graven image of anything," and for you that, and I agree, that means the cross as well, right? Well. They weren't to worship it was the real issue there, okay? Because they did make things. They made graven images. I mean, they had an ark. They had different things that they made. The the key there was worship. You're not to make these to worship them, all right? Because these other gods had images that people made, idols, and they worshipped. They didn't really think those idols were anything. They knew they represented their gods, okay? They were God's representatives. Who is God's representative? We so we don't need a bunch of statues or image. We are the image bearers. Okay, so God said, no, no, you're not. Don't like them. All right, and he mocks, he mocks them. They have mouths they cannot talk. They have eyes they cannot see. When there's trouble, you got to grab them and help them. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, God, this is, you know, it's just it's, it's comical. It's what it is. You know, and he's making fun of them. But uh, we are the image bearer of God. All right, I got a question here from Junior. Now listen, i got to clear this up, okay? I, I've answered questions from Junior before, and people thought I was talking about Bob Cruikshank, Junior. Okay, yes, they both have Junior, but this is just Junior, okay? And if it's Bob, I'll say Bob, so I'll try to get that straight now. But you all know that now, so this is from Junior. And I believe Junior's from Canada. Am I right about that, Junior? I think, it, if I remember correctly. Junior asks, in the phrase, Abraham and his descendants... The word is translated from zera in Hebrew, which comes up 230 times in the Old Testament. It's always translated seed, singular. In Hebrew, zera is never plural. It's always singular. The phrase Abraham and his descendants in Zionism and Abraham and his seed is Christianity. The phrase Abraham and to his descendants is Zionism. And Abraham and to his seed is Christianity. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. You're right, and, and that's, that's the purpose of Galatians 3.16. That's why that verse is so important. The promises were made to Abraham, and we read there in his descendants, and we think, okay, so all the Jews, right? That, that means all the Jews got these promises. That's not what it's saying. It's specifically singular. Abraham and his seed, and Paul makes it clearly, and, and not to many, but one, okay, which is Christ. So the promises made to Abraham and Abraham's descendant, which is Christ, these are the promises. So they're inherited in Christ. Very, very important. And when you miss that, and you think the promises were made to the Jewish people, you get you get way off base. Thanks, Junior. Anybody else we done? Jo- bu- um, yeah. What's your name? Stan? <laughs> 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 uh What do you think President Trump moved the embassy from what Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Well, I can't, you know, I can't answer. Let me tell you this. President Trump as great of a president that I think he is. He's affected by Zionism like, you know, like all other people. Uh, you know, maybe his son-in-law had some, you know, Jared, who is uh, who is Jewish, claims to be Jewish, I should say. Uh, no one is Jewish anymore unless they're a believer. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. And I don't try to get involved in you know, political moves like, I don't know, people loved it, you know, Christians, I know Hagee is all thrilled to death about it. Hagee and some other Zionists were over there to help dedicate it and all this stuff. And, you know, that that's sad. But again, this is how false doctrine affects politics, you know, because we got politicians who think, oh, yeah, we, we better support Israel, you know, and they're supporting Israel and it's political. It's, there's no spiritual reason to do that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't support them politically. That's a whole different issue. We're talking spiritual issue here. We're not. They're not the people of God. It's not the land of God. If we have some kind of political ties that they, they benefit us working with them, okay. But, you know, it seems to me that those ties with Israel just make us go to war. It's all about war because war makes money and makes people wealthy. You know, it's interesting that my hero, President Trump, in four years, never started a war, okay? He didn't start a war. He tried to end them. He was making peace all over the place, you know? When is the last time you saw a president do that? I mean, these Republicans, so-called in the past, you know, Bush, whatever, bunch of warmongers, you know, because it's all about money and power. And, you know, and people... I read a quote last week by Muhammad Ali. I wish I would have saved it. It was amazing. But he said, I'm not going to go leave here and go over and kill other people's children because you say, we sh- you know, he goes, you, I'll stay right here and you can kill me if you want to but I'm not going over there to kill other people that I don't have any contact. You know, I'm like that's what it's, that's what sad. You Go over here and kill these people. Why? What did these people do? Nothing. But we just, politicians made a decision, you know. And I, it breaks my heart to see people come back from the wars, you know, parts missing and everything else. When I was a teenager, I had a poster in my room. It said, the army builds men. And it was a picture of a guy with <laughs> artificial limbs and stuff, you know. Wow. The army builds men, all right, you know, puts them together in pieces because they get, you know, why? Why? You know, in Vietnam, we take a hill, the next day we give it back. You know, it was like, what are the purpose of these people dying? And I friends who came back from Vietnam, they were never right. You know, I mean, I work with a man who was a vietnam vet and eventually killed himself he just could not overcome what he saw over there he couldn't get over it. and i'm like we had no business but anyway that's politics all right we done here how do we we always get into politics wait got some questions here all right junior says yes i am a canadian all right yeah a all right someone asks, is the sabbath rest now in christ Yes, absolutely. And the Sabbath is the only command of the ten that wasn't reinstituted in the New Testament. Because yes, Yeshua is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, I think, lays that out very clearly. All right? So we don't perform, again, the Sabbath was part of the law. We're not under the law. We're under the New Covenant.